we built visualization so that you can understand what the model is inducing. I think that was very unique. This week's episode of The Mixtape, I had the pleasure of interviewing Ronnie Kohavi. Ronnie is a computer scientist well-known within the tech industry for a career that has spanned decades. He has made major contributions to machine learning as well as experimental design uh, online. To an outsider like me, Ronnie seems to have played a critical role in building the knowledge base and the infrastructure required to conduct huge numbers of randomized control trials online. These RCTs, called colloquially the A-B tests, are now a mainstay of business decision-making within tech. And while Ronnie did not invent the RCT, he is no doubt at least partly responsible for helping scale up its practice and its adoption throughout the tech industry. He is the author of a new book entitled Trustworthy Online Controlled Experiments with Cambridge University Press. And in this interview, we discuss his career in computer science, tech, and his thoughts about causal inference and the experimental design more generally. My name is Scott Cunningham, and this is this week's episode of Mixtape the Podcast. Well, it is a it is my pleasure to have on the show uh, uh, Ronnie Kohavi. Is that how you say your last name, Ronnie? Yes, Kohavi. Kohavi. Um, uh, some of you uh, are know him. Uh, he's a legend, and this will be for some of you. This will be you'll be learning about him a little bit more, maybe for the first time. Those of you from academic economics, so. Uh, Thank you for being on the show, Ronnie. Thank you for inviting me. For everybody present, Ronnie, can you tell us uh, your name and where you work and, and what your background is? Okay, I think you said my name, but I'm uh, Ronnie Kohavi, and uh, I have a strange history. I grew up in a combination of Israel, New York, back to Israel and then went to California to Stanford uh, to get my PhD. Mm. Um, I then, it, it's kind of an interesting story that um, while I was in Israel, I was all sort of into computers and, you know, we had this club of, uh, you know, kids with, with Apple IIs at the time. Uh, and I just started to work at a startup when I was just under 15 years old. Uh, what, year was, what year was that? Well, you're aging me. This is like uh, 1980. Oh, really? Okay, 1980. All right. So 1980, you get a job at a startup. It's a computer company? It was a software company. And we wrote sort of this, today I would call this like a database uh, application generator. Hmm. Um, you, it basically, it was a form system that allowed you had a UI that allowed you to like build forms and then have a database to back them up with reporting and everything. Hmm. Um, and it was sort of a strange time because, you know, it was just the beginning of, you know, the rise of the personal computer and, you know, yeah. companies were starting to understand how to build databases. Uh, and, and we had sort of the perfect tool and it's old. Uh, pretty well in Israel, um, including the Israeli Defense Forces. So I remember when, you know, when I was 18 and I checked into the army, I was like, you're using my system to check me in. Wow. <laughs> wow. 
What were you programming in? What was your language? Um, we were programming in C. Yeah. Um, you learned that as a 15 year old. I learned that as a 15 year old. Yeah, I did too. My dad was a computer programmer and he, I would write, uh, in Pascal, uh, games, those, uh, the text games go North, go West, go East. <laughs> and, uh, like he would be doing stuff and I would, I, we had a IBM PS2 model 30. That was our, that was ours that we had. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So I got an Apple II and that's what I learned on. And then the company gave me a Unix machine home, which uh-huh. is, you know, was this like giant machine that I had in my room so I could work from home while I'm in high school. Uh- <laughs> Did you have a bulletin board? Do you have a modem? You were like do, doing BBSs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So we, I had a, I had a modem. I, you know, my Apple II in the early days had a tape that you would mm. save to, uh, and then I remember upgrading to a disc, and it was like huge. Um, but no, that that Unix machine was, you know, had a hard disk and everything in it, um, and. You know, it was kind of a strange time because, you know, I was working for the startup and, you know, there was one trip that uh, he wanted to fly to California and try to sell it here. Yeah. And so he comes to my high school and says, you know, can you spare three days so we can take the weekend plus two, three days to go to California? And I, like, you know, I remember the teachers were freaking out. What's going on? Why is this student, you know, flying out to, to California. Wow. Uh, You're a prodigy. They might so what you were just like, it was, you had some natural innate trait that made you good at what was it programming? Was it, it was a programming. Well, I think, you know, I loved programming. Yeah. I mean, I, it was actually, you know, it started where, you know, from a TI 58, there was this little yeah. programmer cal- programmable calculator that I had, uh, that was my bar mitzvah present. I remember I was trying to sort of pitch, get me this thing because I'll enjoy it. And I was writing hours and hours and hours coding on this like little calculator that oh. you could write, you know, sophisticated, relatively sophisticated programs. I remember I had it play tic-tac-toe and, uh, you know, I wrote these little games on it. Uh, but really, I think the leap was, you know, when I worked at the startup and yeah, we started selling the software that, uh, that was doing pretty well. So would you say that you're a problem solver? Is that like, I'm trying to figure out like, what is the trait exactly like, like correlated with what, what, that makes you so good at it at an early age? I don't know. I think it's more of interest and passion that mm. led me to like read books at early age. Mm. Um, you know, when I then got to the Technion, I was like, you know, I don't need to take data structures. I learned all this stuff on my own. I don't need to take operating systems because I, you know, learned this stuff on my own. And I, I actually managed to convince some of the professors to let me off the classes. Um, they could tell, they could tell. He, they, he, there was, you know, there's a couple of them that were basically, look, you know, they interviewed me for half an hour and said, yep, you don't need to take the class. We'll give you, you know, the passing grade you need for your graduation. Well, that so was for grad we, school or undergrad? This was undergrad. Where'd yeah. you go to undergrad? In the Technion in Israel. Oh, okay. Okay. Is that, is that so, tech school? So like yeah, a, that's like, the like a, famous, like famous tech school, school uh, in Israel. And, you know, so I managed to get my BA degree in two and a half years because they let me off all these classes. Mm. Uh, and so I did it pretty quickly. Have to make up for the fact that I was four years in the army. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. So then you go to Stanford. 
Then I went to Stanford. Real, real quick before I end this, were you ever uh, all, you know, super enamored with, with hacking and stuff when you were a little kid? Hack culture? So there was a lot of the hack culture as it related to games. So yeah. um, we used to like buy a game for the Apple II and then I would, myself, another person would sort of crack it so we could yeah, copy yeah. It and give it to all our friends. Right. Um, so, you know, I ended up, you know, coming up with all these crazy tricks, like we would just dump the whole memory and then figure out all we have to do is basically replay the memory and find out where to start and you get the game. You didn't have to understand how they stored it on disk. There was this, you know, amazingly complicated disk uh, structure that allowed people to avoid being able to copy it. Something called half tracks. They would like record, you know, to move from track to track, you'd have to move the motor four times and they moved only two times. And then, so if you didn't, we're not on the right track, it wouldn't read properly. Yeah. But we, we made this like memory dumps and then, you know, I basically wrote this little operating system that was called HyperDOS at the time that would just like copy the memory to disk and from disk really, really fast. It was the only thing it needed to do. So yeah, uh, it, it was awesome. like able to load and download, you know, 10 times the, the normal speed that the operating yeah. system did. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, you were providers of, you were Robin Hood. Providing providing the public good. What what was your <laughs> hacker? What was your hacker name? <laughs> <laughs> so there was actually we were not using names at the time. It was this club that we got together on Fridays. Uh, um, a bunch of people like me. Remember, there was like at the early days there was not like an internet. Uh, so we would just get together and figure out how to you know break these games and you know pass discs around and and copy them. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Sure. Well, so then you go to Stanford. So what year is it? It's like mid, you graduated in 95. So this is like, like. So this was 91. You get there in 91. Okay. I got there in 91. Stanford uh, at this time, does it have a world reputation for computer science? Yeah. Yeah. It had That's a what really it is. Like you would go to, you would go to Stanford. You wouldn't go before you would go to MIT even. That I don't know. Um, I remember. If I remember correctly, I got into Stanford, but I did not. I applied to MIT and did not get into MIT. It was very, it was, I think it's a high variance process. Uh, the whole application, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to know, you know, who reads your application and what recommendations they, yeah. they like. Um, so, yeah, so I got into Stanford. Um, he was, again, one of these PhD programs that was really good for people who wanted to learn on their own. Yeah. So you have to take some classes. Uh, you have to pass classes. I shouldn't say take. And you could either take them or just pass the exam at the end. And I think I just passed most of the requirements by taking the exams at the end. What were you doing never, all the time? Never attended much. What was that? What were you doing all the time? Um, I was starting to learn how to do research. Mm. <laughs> Reading mm. articles uh coding this was the other thing you know i was you know because of my history of coding i wrote a lot of code before coming to stanford and i was more of trying to do sort of a, what i think today is more of an engineering degree rather than a sort of a research degree yeah um and you know i, I got really interested in machine learning mm. um and Everybody was, you know, you read these papers and there's the author's algorithms always at the top. And then, you know, you see he, they were trying to compare. He or she was running, you know, five other algorithms trying to compare it to. And it was really, really hard to compare to other people because you have to sort of 
re-implement the code from their paper. So I proposed to build a library that would implement all these common algorithms. Yeah. And uh, it was called the Machine Learning Library in C++. Um, and I, you know, it was kind of a funny, funny thing that, you know, I went to, to agencies like the NSF and ONR, the Office of Naval Research, and I proposed we build this library. Um, and I wrote these sort of grant proposals and some of them got approved. Um, and so I had effectively money to hire students to help me, you know, build this library, which was kind of unique. In fact, one of the guys, you know, I remember one of the people came, who approved the grant, they came to meet me and he was shocked that he thought I was a professor there. <laughs> um, and so we ended up writing this library of machine learning uh, algorithms so that you could compare things to each other. So I wrote some relatively well-referenced papers um, on some ideas like doing feature selection. I think, you know, uh, two of my most pa famous papers are around doing feature selection and doing accuracy estimation. Um, you know, they each have like over 10,000 citations if you go to Google Scholar, which is, you know, out there for, for people. Yeah. And the reason I could do that is when I implemented the feature selection, I could run it and see, does it help, you know, naive base? Does it help decision tree induction? Does it have, you know, I worked on graph uh, induction. Oh, your ability to do that was based on this plat, this like this library right. kind of thing you had already made. Exactly. Oh, interesting. Exactly. So we built yeah. this library and it was amazingly useful because it was the first time you could write a paper that could compare to all these other things. Um, that were either re-implemented or interfaced. Like C4.5 was the uh, decision tree induction of the day and we built an interface to it, uh, but we also re-implemented it. And it was kind of interesting because, you know, as we re-implemented it, I, I could do all these comparisons and, you know, I would mail Ross Quinlan and say, hey, you know, I'm getting a different result here. Here's the bug in your code. <laughs> wow. What's your professors thinking? What are they? What are they thinking when you're, so you're doing all this? My stuff? my professor. It was kind of interesting. I worked with with three people. Uh, Yuav Shoham was my main advisor. He was all in the agents. Uh, there was Nils uh, Nils Nelson, who was like this you know figure in machine learning. Um, he wrote the early book, which we laughed. He got everything right in the '60s when he wrote this book, except the name. He called it Learning Machines instead of Machine Learning. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was um, Jerry Friedman, who was one of the authors of the CART, the famous CART book, uh, Classification and Regression Trees. But uh, these were the three people that I worked with. It was kind of interesting because Jerry was in statistics. The other two was in computer science. And people were not talking to each other much at the time. So I had to like learn all the terminology from statistics. And this is a theme that I followed, by the way, for years and years and years. It's like sometimes you go into another domain and you have to learn the terminology. Totally, totally. Wait, but why did you go to stats? So uh, because I wanted to do machine learning, um, I noticed that, you know, here was these articles like the card book, the, you know, one of the famous books on classification and regression trees. Um, he, you know, the four authors had amazing ideas. And, you know, C4.5, which was the sort of computer science version from Ross Quinlan, um, it was very different. Like nobody was talking to each other. I felt, boy, this is an opportunity to combine ideas from both fields. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I think, I, I think it was very, very beneficial. In fact, I think, you know, Jerry Friedman from statistic probably had the most influence on how I learned, you know, more statistics and, and did stuff that was kind of unusual 
uh, at the time. And then we started to have these joint meetings. It was kind of interesting. There were some people that said, hey, we got to learn from each other. And we did that. But I, I remember, you know, one funny thing is at some point I thought, hey, why doesn't MLC++ become sort of my thesis? Um, and I remember, you know, my advisor sort of consulted with some other professor and I said, ah, this is just an engineering project. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, I had to, to show research and that's when I built some of the ideas around accuracy estimation, graph induction, wrappers uh, for feature selection. Um, and so another funny thing is when I finished, it's kind of like the birth of machine learning as we think of it now, right? This kind of like merging of computer science with, with statistics that that's what you were sort of right there at the beginning. Yep. Yeah. I was lucky to, to be there at the, at the right time. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. I, I did not put two and two together on that. So, so you, you graduate and what was your ambition? Were you looking to become an academic? So I, no, 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 I actually, I knew I never wanted to be an academic, you know, cause I was in industry at the startup before I knew I was gonna, I wanted to work in industry. Um, but it, I was sort of going around the company saying, look, we have this machine learning library that I built. And one of the grants required that this be open source. So it was out there as open source. This was the early time of open source. And I was saying, why don't we build a product around it? And I remember, you know, going to IBM and they're like, nope, nope, we are proprietary. We can't use any open source. And you can tell, by the way, that today is like completely different. IBM was a, today it was like a big adopter of open source. But at the time it was like, nope, can't use open source. Uh, we can't use your stuff. And then I went to Silicon Graphics and they're like, wow, this could save two years from the development of a product. <laughs> and so that's what I did. I ended up going to Silicon Graphics uh to build that's like mid 90s that's like this is in 95 yep yeah okay Mid-90s. um and we basically built a product for machine learning and visualization combining you know the two things from silicon graphics you know for example there was a a file system viewer a graphical file system viewer that was a 3d flyover over the file system so like you start at the root and then you could you know fly over and see the files and this this featured in jurassic park there's this really? case where this little little kid is like, oh, I know this is Unix. And, oh, yeah. and she, she flies over the file system. And so we're like, boy, this is a great decision tree visualizer. Let's, in, let, you know, let's build the induction algorithm, take it from MLC++, combine it with this. Um, and, and it became this sort of a really interesting combination of being able to visualize the models that you were building. We built visualization so that you can understand what the model is inducing. I think that was very unique uh, because a lot of the time, once the tree gets more than a few leaves, nobody tries to understand what it is. And here you could actually fly over it and get all the statistics and see how it splits and what it chooses. Um, And it led to some very interesting insights, um, especially in, interestingly enough, in bioinformatics. So there's a few companies at the time that were like, we got to have this. And so we sold, you know, this was Silicon Graphics. Ultimately, it sells hardware. Um, and because it was only available in Silicon Graphics, we were able to sell big machines to do machine learning on Silicon Graphics hardware. Wow. Um, this, was, this was interesting at the time. What were your um, clients? Who were your clients? What were they using it for? So that's what I'm saying. So it was basically bioinformatic uh, companies were using it. 
to try and understand, you know, some gene patterns. Huh.H, we were everywhere. I mean, there's examples of banks using it, but I, you know, this is for I prediction analytics. This is like machine learning prediction analytics. This is machine learning prediction. So you could build models. You can use it to classify. And like, but the interesting thing was, we were able every model that we induced, we were able to show you visually. Yeah. And you know that's what Silicon Graphics was known for is the visualization. So we had. You How know, did you have that idea? What made what made you have that idea that that would be a that that would be like the app killer kind of to have it? I, be I, I think you know. So I I wouldn't claim credit for that. I think you know SGI hired me with the goal of bringing in MLC plus plus as a backend for machine learning and their knowledge in visualizations to combine the two to build a product. So we built. Nobody had done that before. Nobody had nobody had been kind of blending. I, people, stuff. you know, people visualize things. I, you know, in my thesis, I visualized. I do decision graphs rather than trees. And I found some software to visualize the graphs. It was called Dottie from AT and T. Um, and so there are visualizations of the models in my thesis, and you know, I induced decision tables, and I was building them. What we did here is one step further, which is to make it interactive. So, you know, when you yeah. visualize a graph on a piece of paper, it was this ugly graph with too many nodes. When you visualize the decision tree, you could visualize the first three levels and then there's too many nodes. What was interesting here is that we built a tool that allowed you to sort of do this flyover. So if you were yeah. interested in, you know, this age, this education, then the tree would expand and show you more and more nodes as you went over. You feel uh, like that helped these executives kind of understand what you were doing? Um, I think, you know, it sold. I don't know if executives really got into this as much. I think the, the data miners at the time, the business analysts, um, they were able to better understand the data by by doing this i i don't think it got to the level where you know an executive would induce a machine learning model fly over it then change the parameters build another model fly over it i think it was mostly done by by others but we were able to build cool models and show really interesting insights yeah 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 um that's amazing that's what year was that so Nine? i was there in 95 to 98 you know the videos that you're seeing are around 97 Wow, that's really cool. So when did you end up at Microsoft? This was, there's a long route to that. So after Silicon Graphics, um, I went to a startup in the Bay Area called Blue Martini Software, where the idea was to combine machine learning and uh, to e-commerce to try and, you know, so you can build a store and then we can do mining to understand what patterns are out there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we were fairly successful. This was, I joined in 98, employee number 10, uh, just so that you understand. In 2000, 2001, we IPO'd. So here's a startup that in two and a half years, IPOs, a unicorn, we were worth like $3 billion. Um, and, and we sold a bunch of the software that allowed companies to build an e-commerce site to sell something but also use reporting and machine learning to find the patterns. And again, so I was involved in, you know, real experiments trying to improve something on the website by, you know, building a machine learning model to find patterns. Um, and in fact, you know, there was uh, one of the, there's a competition, annual competition called the KDD Cup. 
Um, and so we were able to release data from one of the clients and build a competition around it for KDD to predict who's going to purchase. And, you know, we had, we'd set up some questions and um, it was, it was amazing because, you know, here's real data that we got and you can see how I'll share a problem that was very common, which is what we called leaks. This is when something sort of predicts the target. And so, but, but it leaks the answer. For example, if you're trying to predict if somebody is going to buy something, well, if you have access to sales data and there's a field which is taxes, then it's trivial. It's a leak because if you know how much taxes didn't pay, they paid, then you know that, you know, they made a large purchase. Got and it. so it was interesting that in this competition, it was real data. There were all these leaks in there. And if you were trying to build a model and you didn't take the effort to remove the leaking attributes, yeah, um, you wouldn't do well in prediction because during prediction time, there was no you know, taxes. It was always unknown. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> so it was actually, you know, I was told that some companies spend hundreds of hours using their tools. Uh, there was a, you know, I think, you know, at the time there was tens of companies that competed, including the well-known SaaS and, you know, the, the company that built, that monetized uh, and built a commercial version of CART classification and decision trees. But, you know, it was kind of a, a real example of how hard it is in practice when the data isn't super clean for you. Right, 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 right. Was it common, so, was it common, Ronnie, like at that time for a computer scientist to be so deep into the weeds of working with data and data analytics? Is that like, uh, that I mean, I, I think, you know, back then? It, it was, it was starting to get common. I mean, KDD, became a conference in 95. Uh -huh. So it was, you know, knowledge discovery and data mining uh, uh, conference. Uh, it's actually funny. I think it's KDD, you know, uh, had some problems coming up with the names because some names were copyrighted. And <laughs> <laughs> They're like, nobody's got KDD. No, no, no we, we were not allowed to use the data mining in the name. So KDD actually stands for knowledge discovery in databases. Oh, <laughs> Machine learning was was being caught was trying they were trying to copyright machine learning no no data mining they were trying to use the data, name, mining. data mining in the name that was the and that they, we were not allowed to use that and so it became knowledge discovery in databases yeah um, okay well so so is this right Ronnie if I called you right now the father of A B testing is is that uh, mostly false or mostly yeah I, I don't think that's true i mean I, I certainly don't think that let me put it this way the theory of a b testing was built by rf fisher in the 1920s exactly right they, exactly. you know so the statistics was known in the medical community it was known in you know by statisticians i think what made a difference is the scale at which we started to run experimentation. Um, so I think, you know, Google and Amazon, I think were the early company. I mean, the credit card companies were doing A-B testing for a while. You know, as I was trying to find out, you know, who was running A-B tests, um, you know, there were some credit card companies that were running it. But I think the scale that we so, ran- so tell, Walk me through the first moment when, when randomization is starting to cross your mind of having oh, so that, that was even at Blue Martini. So we were, as I said, at Blue Martini, we were building 
these machine learning models and we came up with insights about what we could do better. And then um, I actually remember the case, it was email. So we had an email system where we were emailing clients, telling them, hey, you know, here's a product you should buy. And I remember that the return on the email was just horrendously large. It, and, and, but it was done using sort of, I would say, simple estimates mm-hmm. because they were sending, you know, some of our clients were sending lots of email. This is why spam became so common. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember I was speaking to this VP and he says, look, every time I send this email, we make a million dollars. But um, but so he was very optimistic because he was sending all these emails, looking at revenue from the people that he emailed to, but many of them would have come to the store anyway. Um, And so I was trying to pitch them to run a controlled experiment, figure out who you're going to mail. So so you immediately kind of were thinking about selection bias. Why is that? Well, is that, a, is that, is that something that you just immediately recognized or is that? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, that I think it was you know, part something. of my, part of my stats that I learned at Stanford. I knew I was aware of experimentation. Yeah. Now, yeah. I wasn't aware as I am today. I remember vaguely, you know, you got to do a control group. Um, and I remember, it was funny. I remember I said, listen, why don't we do a control group? And I remember proposing that we hold out, you know, 10%. So we can assess the true value of the email campaigns. And this is, I remember the first time that like, I couldn't convince businesses because they thought they were making so much money. And if they just held out 10%, they would lose 10% of revenue. Mm-hmm. Right. The person, uh, the, the people there were like, what do you mean? Oh, I'm right. making a million dollars. You're asking me to hold out a hundred thousand dollars. That's dumb. <laughs> That's been the obstacle. I bet. That was that was a huge because if they don't if they don't believe that uh, you need to do it if they don't understand why you need to do it then when you're asking them to do it all they can think is I'm losing a million dollars I'm losing money that was a huge obstacle uh, is that um, still an obstacle and and I was I remember it was a very tough obstacle uh, many of the clients were not willing to to run any sort of a controlled experiments because they're dropping money on the table there. Yeah. Uh, but yet I, you know, there was this feeling that they're way overestimating the return on the email. Right. right, right. Um, anyway, this was, I think my first exposure, we, oh, did, you find? What, we so did run some control and we found, you know, for those that were willing to run it, we found that the return was much, much lower. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, did they immediately understand? Well, how much educating were you having to do while you're doing this? Of like, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what it means, and this. Well, is so remember, why. there we were not. We were not embedded with a client. We sold software, and in fact, you know, there even inside Blue Martini at the time, I don't think people appreciated this as much. Because you know, will this sell more if we run a controlled experiment? Um, and and it felt more like ah, this is for existing clients. You know, if they want to overestimate, this is. By the way, I think this is a theme. If people overestimate something, there is no incentive for them to lower the estimate because their bonuses are tied to their claims, the money they claim, right? There's like, nobody wants to say, oh, you know, remember last quarter I told you we made a million dollars per email. It's really only 150K. We lost a million. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. well, you can't lose by email usually, but. um, Right, yeah, yeah. 
but um, but yeah, there was no incentive. It's like later on, you know, when I worked at other places and I was telling people, you have a lot of bots. There was like almost no incentive to remove the bots because it would remove traffic. Yeah, and yeah, you couldn't yeah. claim we're the big site. Yeah. Um, That's a real uphill battle. That was a big uphill battle. And I think, uh-huh. you know, that was my first exposure to sort of businesses having the wrong incentives because mm. there was not this, you know, measure of trustworthy results. Uh, I think, you know, you'll hear me use the word trust a lot because this is this became a theme throughout my life where I was trying to pitch trust. Uh, you know, that's also in the title of our book. Right. We were running controlled experiments that initially were not very trustworthy. We were making a lot of mistakes. And so what's we a mistake? On, what, on like to tell me an early mistake. Oh, the earliest mistake was uh, running controlled experiments and not looking for sample ratio mismatches, so SRMs. So this is very common. You run a controlled experiment, you randomize it, you know, 50% control, 50% treatment, or, you know, we usually are running smaller percentages, let's say 20, 20. Um, And then instead of getting the desired percentages, you're off, you know, instead of 50%, you get 49.5 and 50.5. Okay. Um, And you would just be like, let it go. And well, we didn't know. We didn't do this check. We weren't aware that this is a problem in the early days. And so when when you have a sample ratio mismatch, and I show this in my book, you tend to get very extreme results because Mm -hmm. the traffic that you're missing is usually highly biased in some way. Um, You know, it's the zero, it's the people who viewed zero pages as an example, or it's the people that click too much, they got filtered out as bots. And so when you have a sample ratio mismatch, the result end up being either super good or super bad. Well, yeah. the super bad people, you know, say, ah, the idea is bad. The super good people tend to celebrate. Yeah. And so coming up with, you know, just this guardrail to say, if you have a sample ratio mismatch, you cannot look at the results. <laughs> I remember the first time we implemented this, it was at Microsoft. We implemented sample ratio mismatch, mismatches. We put a banner at the top. You have a sample ratio mismatch, but we showed the results. And you could see people on giving talks and discussing the results of an experiment by ignoring the banner. <laughs> it's like, this wasn't important enough. So we ended up blanking the whole scorecard. If you had a sample ratio mismatch, you were not allowed to look at the results unless you explicitly acknowledge that you have a sample ratio mismatch and then we would uncover it. Right. Um, I think this was, it was like you were, this is what they call now P hacking a little bit, right? Like it's like a version of it. No, I, I, I wouldn't call this P hacking. We're not trying to think of P hacking is like this. I think a P hacking is like this, you know, the, where the incentives are in place for you to, you know, kind of go beyond what's kind of experimentally valid. Uh, I'll talk about P hacking in a second. I'll give you better examples. And, and some of them are in this KDD upcoming article uh, that's going to be this August where we sort of look at intuition busters. But I think SRM to me was a surprising step in recognizing not just sort of a problem, but how often it happens. So, right. um, so when we implemented SRMs, we realized, boy, this is like happening a lot. It was like 15% of experiments have this sample ratio mismatch. And each one was a huge pain to debug because, you know, is the randomization, the randomization usually isn't broken, right? You tested it. It's something else in the data pipeline on the way. It's some filter. It's some traffic that gets from the other side. 
So mm-hmm. there's actually a paper published a couple of years ago by my team on diagnosing sample ratio mismatches. And they share that, you know, even at Microsoft, when we had experiments running for, you know, a dozen years at Bing, we still get sample ratio mismatches once in a while. And in new organizations, um, you see that a lot. Recently, oh, and, and this is why it's interesting, because when you look at vendors, companies rarely implemented this check. Like I remember going to Optimize and say, look, you guys are not doing sample ratio mismatch tests. You should do that. And it took them years to implement that. Like I was at a point where we were at Microsoft, we were doing experimentation for the product teams, you know, Bing and Office and, you know, Xbox, Windows, all those. And meanwhile, the marketing people, they were using Optimizely because it's easy, it's WYSIWYG, it's beautiful. And at some point we were looking at some of the results and we were horrified to see all these sample ratio mismatches. Right. right. <laughs> and here are people making decisions where the result is invalid and the company doesn't recognize it or the mm-hmm. software from the company. So I think that this is probably the best example of a guardrail that everybody needs to build. Um, and you built it into... It sounds like you built it though into not just as a concept, but like software. Like, we built it into the platform, and that, that's platform. everybody has to do that. So, any provider of A/B testing needs to have a check for sample ratio mismatch. Mm-hmm. And if it's violated, if the probability is low, you know, it's like you know, getting forty nine point five and fifty point five, and you're supposed to get 50, 50 and when you have a million users, that's like winning the lottery. You know, that shouldn't happen to you. Uh, got it. Um, so it detects the probability of an SRM that would occur in that would occur under this randomization, and then it tells you this is not something's wrong. Correct. Right. Right. Yeah. Something's wrong with the randomization, and now you well, can- so that's the point. It's usually not with random randomization. Sort of is a is a hashing algorithm. It's it's gonna yeah. work. Right. The right. problem is that the data pipeline at some yeah. point removes data. You know, for example, fraud is typically removed. Bots are removed. You know, I mentioned this statistics that people don't realize that Bing, 50% of the traffic is bots. Right. And so if you don't move the noise, you lose statistical power. You want to remove all this noise that is not coming from humans. Mm. Um, and so usually in the data pipeline phase, there is something that removes data. And if it generates the SRM, your results are invalid. A lot of the times it's a campaign coming from the side. Marketing would sort of throw a campaign and it would only go into the control or the treatment and that would create the SRM. But this campaign is very biased because, you know, whoever clicked through from some ad is going to be very different than somebody who came to the website. And so this creates huge biases Yeah. Um, and, you know, un- unbelievable results. So, uh, so how, when did you notice you were like, you know, the A-B testing is probably about to become a major part of my life. Was there oh, like- so this, this was very, very explicit. So, you know, I'll say Amazon, I credit Amazon with teaching me more about experimentation. When I got to Amazon, uh, and this is why, you know, sort of I give credit to the Amazons and the Googles of the world. Amazon was already running controlled experiments when I joined. It was a system. Um, I helped improve it, but it was, it was called WebLab where we were already running at Amazon controlled experiments when I joined um, and we improved it and we started to scale it. But I think the big difference for me was when I came to Microsoft, I came to Microsoft um, to build machine learning models for understanding user intent in office. This was what I was hired to do. 
What year is funny. this? Huh? What year is this? This is in 2005. Okay. All right. Sorry. Keep going. Um, so I'm joining. I'm supposed to, you know, build this group that builds machine learning models to understand user intent uh, and, and help them. And the VP that hired me, Kai-Fu Lee, goes on sabbatical, Amazon, sorry, Microsoft has this concept of you get a sabbatical after N years. He doesn't come back, he goes to Google. And so people come to me and say, okay, we're, you know, he had this vision, we are not gonna execute on it. We're gonna break up the team, the whole division's gone away. Um, I was hired at something called the partner level, which is, you know, people are supposed to be, uh, you know, similar to a law firm, you know, the, the, the top echelon of the company. And they were like, we don't know what to do with you. Take six months, think about what you want to do. Uh, and we'll see if we want to do it. So I said, I'm going to build an experimentation platform. Mm, wow. <laughs> because in the six months, in a few months that I was there, I noticed that nobody was running control experiments. Yeah. We were shipping all this stuff. Um, we were updating, you know, MSN was a live website. The Microsoft.com was a large website. Nobody yeah, that's was running it. control experiments. That's like a, uh, that's like a, it's kind of historical. I mean, uh, Fisher and Bristol started the Rothamsted experiment station. And like, and that's right. where randomization inference anecdotally came from, was from, from that, it, it, it's it's neat. You're you're just following in the footsteps of all these experimentalists for in a hundred years. That's really neat. Wait, so yeah. you so you come back, you tell Microsoft, I'm going to start an experimental design center at Microsoft, right? What, what do they say? Uh, nobody understood what I wanted to do. It was, like, <laughs> it was it was a couple of months where people like. Trying, we don't do this. We know how to ship software. We're the best at shipping software. You know, why would we do something different? Yeah. Uh, so, so I basically, you know, cobbled a few resources. And I remember the first year. Well, wait, I was like, Ronnie. Okay. Why are you betting on experiments? Tell me. Tell I, knew me. I knew it worked. So I had the experiment that I ran at Amazon. Yeah. And I, and I was humbled to see that half the ideas failed. I remember this, you know, there's this statistics that, you know, I, I, I had several teams at Amazon, but, you know, I also had the web lab team. So I was responsible for the team that ran the, the platform at Amazon and I was head of data mining and personalization. So in personalization, we were trying to improve the algorithms and I saw lots of failures. Yeah. You know, we were coming up with all these nice ideas. And I remember at one point, I think this was the epiphany for me was, I said, let's just see what percentage of our ideas are successful. Yeah. And it was just around 50%. Yeah. And I was horrified. I'm like, when you work with the teams, everybody feels that, you know, everything they do is great. Uh -huh. And, you know, we celebrate the release. Right. And on my team, when we started running experiments, we realized we're failing so often. So I knew that this thing is going to be humbling. And I came to Microsoft. Listen, this is the interesting part. I came to Microsoft and I said, look, we're shipping a lot of stuff. We celebrate shippings. I'll show you this thing. Ah, I have to change the, the background on this. Well, <laughs> let me not do it here. Um, Microsoft gives a ship it award every time software ships. And it says every time you ship, you make progress. It doesn't say if you improve. It just says, you know, the, the incentive was to ship. 
Uh, and I came and I said, listen, if we evaluate things, yeah. we're going to find out that 50% of the ideas are failing because that's what I observed at Amazon. And the response was unbelievable denial. The first oh. response that I'm hearing, we have better program managers here. Yeah. <laughs> like they were thinking that 50% is impossible. The Amazon program managers must be idiots because yeah, yeah. we're shipping good stuff. Now, I, I, at some point later on, I published a paper and I showed that it's not even 50%. It's only 30% of ideas at Microsoft, about a third. That but you do have better product. You do have managers. It's only 30, not 50. That, that are worse. <laughs> yes, on average. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, you think about like the mythology of Steve Jobs and how he's like, I don't run focus groups. I know what people want. I, it's like, I bet you... That well, first of all, of, that's not true. I mean, the, the not true? Apple does a lot of internal testing and dog fooding of their products. And uh, it is true that he he was more of, you know, I come with the ideas, everybody executes. Uh-huh. Um, okay. So that kind of ethos is not, is a little bit of his, just his cowboy mythology a little bit. And, and I think, you know, there's some products for which this works. And I think, you know, if you look at, innovation over time that happens for search engines, for assistance, you know, who's going to win long-term? Is it Siri or is it, you know, Alexa? I'm betting more on the Alexas of the world that just are just going to incrementally improve with the data over time. Right. Right. So you're, you know, I'm not sure about that. Mine's unplugged. I was like, I'm glad mine's unplugged. (laughs) So I do think I do think that, you know, and, and this is one of actually in one of our papers, we said there are sort of areas where experimentation fits well yeah. and there are areas that it doesn't. And, you know, if you're iterating on a regular basis quickly, that's where experimentation works. If you're building something that releases every five years, it's not the ideal space for experimentation. Why? What's the so what's the big picture of explaining why what why those two events well, so you need to you need to get this feedback, right? You want to be able to be in a domain where you can iterate and learn from it, right? There's this cycle of you try, you get an idea, you implement sort of a minimum viable version of it, you try it out, you learn, and then you repeat and iterate. Now, if your product is releasing, I'd say every couple of weeks, you know, yeah. the standard scrum methodology, then you're in great shape, right? Because you release stuff every two weeks. And it's like you're using the art, you're using the RCT to optimize. It's like, you're using uh, the RCT to learn, to learn and, and, and change the product map. Now, if you build a product map, that's going to be, here's what we're going to do over the next three years. Think yeah. of like, you know, Windows Vista, right? It's a five-year release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no opportunity to get feedback until the last year when they go out to, you know, insiders and do some alpha and beta testing. Yeah. Right. And by then, you know, the software has been QA'd and everybody's invested. Right. And um, there was actually research showing that, you know, big releases of Office, um, most of the features did not improve the user experience. So there was some of that being done at Microsoft at the time. But I think the, the real difference happens when you're able to change the release cycle. So, for example, at Microsoft, there was a big change to go from releasing Office every three years to yeah. releasing Office every month. Right. right. And okay. when you release Office 365 every month, you're in the experimentation world. You can now, every one of these monthly releases, 
has hundreds of features that are built as experiments. And then you get the data and you can make a decision about whether to, you know, this idea is good or bad and how we incrementally improve it. Let me ask you this. I have two, two questions and then, and then uh, it's kind of, it's top of the hour. Um, if you, you know, the, the part of what, so I'm at a business school and, and we at Baylor, like every other school in the world, has started these masters of, of data science or business analytics programs, you know? And so I was just curious if you could go in, right. And like, say, uh, I would like to, uh, you know, design elements of this curriculum or like, you know, of this one year data analytics, right? Yeah. What and they said and they gave you a blank check and they were like, all right, do it. What are you gonna do? Uh, my recommendation is to give people sort of a real problem where the data is dirty. I think most of the data that we see out there in school, the data that you know, I grew up on something called the UCI, the UC Irvine repository. It was yeah. a large repository of machine learning problems. They were all super clean. Yeah. Somebody did all the work to clean the data. And then I remember when I ran this KDD cup, there was, you know, the data was real. Yeah. Um, and so you learn about things like leakage and, and things like that. So I think this is this to me is the recommendation for programs is pick some real problems. Real problems. Real problems in the real world. Try to solve something from end to end. Don't focus. I mean, there's this joke, you know, that, you know, when we build machine learning models, um, we, we think of the machine learning as the 90%, but it's really the 5%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And so you, you end up spending most of the time on the data processing. Totally. Yep. And then, you know, the joke is that you spend, you know, 80% of the time on the data processing, 5% of the machine learning, and then 50% explaining to others why 80% of the time took so long. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I have a, uh, a lecture I give called the hidden curriculum that's all about the importance of that 80% time period that being crucially important. Um, okay, that's really great. All right, so second question. Now you get to go into uh, a high school, an ordinary high school, not, at, not in Palo Alto, um, you know, just random part of the country. And these are kids that literally just they don't know what's out there like that you know right and you can help expand their horizons and give them and really at the same time kind of you know advance their education what do you think that you would what do you what do you think would really 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 be an impactful experience educational experience for like a 11th or 12th grade kid okay i'll tell you what i think the hierarchy of evidence. Mm. So I, I don't know if you're how much you're familiar with this, but there's this sort of a hierarchy of evidence where people say, if, you know, if you hear some anecdote, don't trust it. And then if you see a, an observational study uncontrolled, you can trust a little bit more, but not much. And then at the top of the pyramid are these controlled experiments and multiple controlled experiments. Um, I think giving people at an early age, the ability to read a piece of paper and then critique it as this is not something that I would trust because it is based on an observational study. I would trust it less. Trust. Um, I think being able to teach people 
and this should start at high school, but I think it goes, you know, all the way to, you know, college and, and university. Yeah. Many of the publications that we see out there yeah. are incorrect. Right. Um, and, you know, sure. I have this talk that I give out on famous results that were later on debunked. Yeah. Um, you know, papers that were cited a thousand times mm-hmm. based on an observational study. And then they sort of realize that, you know, they, when they run the controlled experiments, it's in the other direction. Right. Right. Um, I think this is one of those things, the ability to read a piece of news and understand if you should trust it because it is based on a controlled experiment or it is based on, you know, some doctor saying, Hey, I had five patients and all of them got well when I injected them with this magical drug. Right. Right. Yeah. Trust the name of your book, trustworthy online controlled experiments. I can see now, and even going back, circling back to the challenges of even a firm like Microsoft uh, at that early, early stage, not being able to understand what, you know, what you were doing, how just at an earlier age, introducing that pyramid, right. You know, just interesting introducing that pyramid, that, that visual pyramid, even, you know, that visualization of it. It's great. It's a great idea. Yeah. Well, it's a real pleasure, uh, Ronnie, to have, have you on. I wanted to kind of conclude one thing. You're, you teach uh, now a lot of stuff on uh, A-B testing at, at, uh, at, a, at ScholarSite. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, who that, that, that's for and, and w- w- what it's been like for, for you and for the, for the students? Yeah, so it's, it's actually you know, been surprising. I would say, you know, when, when first of all, when Cambridge approached me to write a book, I was like, ah, this is too niche of a topic. Nobody's going to buy it. Uh, and obviously, you know, the book did a lot better than we expected. Uh, and, you know, I've seen a lot of people sort of in surprising domains that told me that, you know, they, they're able to influence their bank or this, you know, company doing something un, unrelated to what I think is, you know, sort of the classical, you know, e-commerce. Um, so when I first set up the class at ScholarSite, again, we thought eh, this is going to be a fun class to do. And we already did, you know, four cohorts. Some of them, we had to stop registrations because they got full because we want to keep the class small. But I was very surprised by the breadth of the companies that are sending people to learn. Yeah. Um, you know, if you go to the, the website, you'll see you know, of course, you see the Googles and the Microsofts and uh, Apple is sending some people. Again, we talked about, you know, is the culture right for that? Um, but companies are interested in, in, in learning more. And you see, you know, Disney sending people, Nike sending people, Einar yeah. uh, Zabush, Bush, British Petroleum. Um, you know, these are people that, you know, Peloton. Uh, these are Fidelity. These are companies that are, I wouldn't say are sort of the, the classical, you know, software builders with a website that they can iterate on. Right. And so it is, it is interesting to see that the, but it's not just the website. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, right. It's like, it's not just about websites. It's about, uh, you know, true evidence-based. You could have like in the, using the hierarchical thing, you could have evidence-based. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, look, the, the you know, evidence in medicine is, 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 is amazing. Yeah. 
he uses anecdote as the evidence, right? Like, like there's like, so like when you combine business analytics or business decision-making with the art, with a, with a culture of, of like, we're going to randomize, you know, it, it's a real game changer. It seems like, like it would be, or it could be. Now you still need, you know, if you look at my chapter one, there's a sort of these things that you have to believe in the tenants. Yeah. Um, and I think it is important to recognize, like if you are working in a domain that doesn't iterate fast enough, it's really hard to use experiments. Yeah. Um, I, I think there are some necessary things. I mean, you have to believe that you're not going to create a three-year roadmap and execute it, that it's a forking path, right? You're, we're going to try this. And based on that, we're going to decide. Yeah. Um, I think that's a cultural thing that has to be adopted. And some companies choose to do it and some don't. And, you know, and I, by the way, I respect some of the things at Apple where they do execute um, in a certain way that's different than the Googles and Microsofts and Amazon, yeah. and it's working for them. I, you know, I don't necessarily like that. I, I believe in empowering the organizations, telling them here's a metric that we want you to optimize, letting them innovate and prove through experimentation that they are moving that metric. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's awesome. So you're doing, you're going to do another class at ScholarSite. Yes, we had oh, four. Yeah. We're doing another one in late August. Cool. All right. Well, good luck with that. Well, Ronnie, it's so much fun getting to meet you. Uh, Absolutely. I enjoyed it. It's an honor. All right. You have a good day. You too. Bye-bye.